Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or a crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Correa. I work here at Wire, work on growth. Today I'm joined by Anatoly Yakovenko, co-founder and CEO of Solana. Anatoly, thank you for joining the show. Um, thank you, Thomas. Absolutely. I'm really, really excited to uh, have you here. We have some mutual friends, I suppose. So we got connected via them and finally have you on the show. Just very, very high level. And you're going to explain this much better than I do in a second. Solana is a layer one blockchain focused on high throughput. Before we jump into Solana and what what that really means and what that really is, let's let's talk about you. Uh, let's talk about your background and how that kind of fed and translated into Solana and how you got into crypto really. Sure. So if my name is a giveaway, I'm, I'm very Ukrainian. I was born in the Soviet Union. When I left, it was uh, right after the whole thing fell apart. I still had a Soviet passport, but I grew up in, in the Chicago area, went to school at Urbana-Champaign. And I had a startup there with a, a friend of mine who's the CTO of, of Solana. And this was this idea of that we can take like these Linux boxes. This was like 2001, maybe put some uh, cards that can process phone lines in them and build like programmable call managing like voice stuff. So if you guys ever heard of Grand Central Dispatch or Google Voice, that was like the the vision, but this was right after the dot-com crash in central Illinois. There's really no investors and kind of that company failed, but we'd learned a lot. And um, Qualcomm, this telecommunication chip provider, network equipment provider, was working on something similar um, that kind of hired me on the spot. I ended up moving to San Diego. Greg joined me a little later. We uh, lived in Ocean Beach. We'd wake up, surf, bike to work about 18 miles, bike back, surf again, and then go play underwater hockey. So spending most of our time, you know, doing fun stuff and, and learning a lot about programming in like these embedded systems that require a lot of attention to detail for performance. Yeah. And when I was doing my homework to prep for this interview, I noticed that you have kind of an advanced background in distributed systems and of course, hardware, which came about in, in Qualcomm. Was Qualcomm working on a lot of distributed systems kind of technology when you were there? I mean, um, the biggest distributed system in the world, right, is LTE, CDMA. There's like 3 billion devices that are connected to this thing. You can literally, you know, send a message from this thing you hold in your hands to 3 billion people instantly in the world, right? That's, that's a pretty big system. Yeah. So, so let's forget like putting all of that essentially on the, you know, let's forget about blockchains for a second. Yeah. What are the challenges inherently with distributed systems uh, that you're tackling at Qualcomm and how did that, how did that lead to you having an idea for Solana? So I ended up working um, on this project called Brew. If you guys ever heard of this, like it was a mobile platform before the iPhone there was such a thing. So this was an OS that ran like in all these feature phones. And if this makes any sense to you, it was written in C with C++ compatible V tables. Now, if you understand what that means, it means it was a work of love. <laughs> it was uh, something that was carefully constructed to run the least amount of resources on these devices that were sold for like, you know, for free, basically given out. Um, the interesting thing is that like, the chips that people are building at the time became more and more complicated really, really quickly. And a modern CPU that's in your phone has like 
30 different processors running on it. So it's a distributed system with um, instead of like thinking about, you know, packets moving around the network in hundreds of milliseconds, we're measuring them in, you know, nanoseconds, right? <laughs> Microseconds. But same problems, right? Same exact distributed problems. You're trying to figure out how do we synchronize state between all these different things that are have a different understanding of it. Mm-hmm. So systems have to be in sync. Resources are limited. So I can see how that translated into blockchains. How did you hear about crypto for the first time? There was uh, this crazy guy. Well, I play the sport called underwater hockey. We're already crazy. Uh, there was somebody crazier in that group that was like, this Bitcoin thing is really cool. Yeah. I saw that on your Twitter uh, description, by the way. I thought that was a joke. I didn't know underwater <laughs> hockey was a thing. <laughs> uh, not only that, three of us are world-class underwater hockey players. So we were all in the US team at one point or another. I feel like I just offended you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it is as silly as any other sport. That's how we kind of describe it. You know, it's people trying to score on each other, right? There's, it's a little, it's athletic. You hold your breath. So that, that's part of it. This, mm-hmm. You got to hold your breath underwater. For how long? As long as you can. Okay. No one's ever drowned yet, but um, you get close. How do you stay underwater? Are you like saddling weights to yourself no, or something? No, you have fins. Okay. Okay. If you Google it, it'll look like kind of a like a scrum under in a mm. pool, like almost like rugby, but it's not, it's supposed to be non-contact. Uh-huh. <laughs> and this is like Bitcoin, how? <laughs> well, uh, the, the first person that told me about Bitcoin was somebody in that group that was like, Hey, look at this crazy thing. It's like internet money and uh, you can use your computer to mine it. Yeah. And I started looking into it and um, it's kind of interesting. I tried running a CPU miner at the time. And then thought, maybe I could port this to GPUs and like earn more Bitcoins. But just kind of didn't really follow it, uh, follow the space. I was paying attention to it. I remember when Mt. Gox blew up. That was that was interesting. Uh, I remember the Ethereum ICO. And as a computer science person, I was like, this is really cool. It's like a Turing complete engine that's globally distributed. But there's a lot of really interesting properties to come of that. And eventually, I kind of got into it really because of the Filecoin ICO because it was so big and was such a really like massive thing that everyone started paying attention to the space. And the obvious problem that everyone was screaming about was scalability and dealing with, you know, the slowness of Bitcoin and fees were going up and everyone was thinking, oh my God, fees are going to be like $1,000 per transaction. I remember like conferences like stopped accepting bitcoin because it was like 60 bucks to to transfer right (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, it's funny how your backgrounds and like people's backgrounds in the traditional space just there's always some sort of equivalent in the uh, blockchain space that draws you into it magnetizes you into it so for you uh you know you're playing around with distributed systems and uh, storage and things like that and filecoin is the thing that draws you into the space for for me i was uh you know on the sales and trading uh, side at city and looking to make a move into a hedge fund and realized that when i was interviewing at several hedge funds that these guys are kind of boring and kind of like <laughs> you know past their golden age if you will 
and I stumbled onto Numerai, which is like the platform uh, hedge fund that's built on on blockchains. And that's what drew me into the space. And, you know, I can imagine someone that is in the traditional supply chain industry, right, being drawn into the space by some supply chain blockchain project. And blockchain has this amazing way of uh, affecting or at least trying to affect every industry in the world. And it's it's great. The suction of talent into the space I, has been amazing. Yeah, I think just the vision is is so magical, right? Imagine like an internet where that's private. And like it's ironic that an open database effectively is the forcing function to build a private internet. Because as an engineer, you're then like, oh wait, I can't like just store all your data. Go give me like self-generate a private key. Give me a secret that I can't like decode anything with, and then we'll use that. Yeah. Right. Like it, it really makes you think. Like oh, like if we had this as a as a building block earlier on, like you know, ten years ago, how different things could be now. Right. And, like I think just so many people are captured by that. Like that idea that you can have control over your identity, control over your data with all these digital devices that we're interacting with, which is becoming just about everything. And it was sort of the original vision of the internet, right? I don't think yep. the internet pioneers imagined a world where Google and Facebook would own your data. And, you know, it was all about empowering the users yeah. uh, at inception. Um, so let's talk about, so you discovered Bitcoin and you got into crypto. You were probably thinking that there could be a better version of Bitcoin. How did, how did all of that lead into Solana and how did you formulate that initial team? So Solana Beach was where kind of Greg and I uh, lived. That's where the name comes from. And I was at this Cafe Soleil in San Francisco. I had too much coffee. was up till four in the morning. <laughs> That's kind of why the name stuck. It was like a, a sign, so, so to speak. And uh, I realized that there's a way to encode passage of time as data. So effectively, what, I, what I'm trying to say is like, when you look at a timestamp and an image, like, you know, your JPEG, you take a picture and there's some data that says this was taken on like March 20th or something like that. Um, that can be faked, right? But if you had a data structure that could cryptographically be shown to have taken a certain amount of time to generate, then you know that this particular data represents a certain amount of time. Like it, it's not, it can't be faked like a, a date or a timestamp in an image, right? Yep. So... I kind of came to that realization and in distributed systems, if you have a source of time, if you have kind of a, a globally agreed upon clock, you can do a lot of optimizations. They've been around since the 40s. Like early, early wireless networks were kind of like Bitcoin. People would transmit like, you know, here I have a radio, I start broadcasting, somebody else starts broadcasting on the same channel and just noise appears, right? Kind of makes sense. So, but people realize that if we shared a clock and we, you know, you would transmit in one hour and I would transmit in the next hour, then that would stop the interference. So in a similar way, like Bitcoin, everyone, when two people produce the same block without knowing each other, that's where forks occur, right? That's where all this, all these distributed systems problems blow up. But once you have a clock, you can kind of start ordering the system and give it structure and optimize it from there. And that was really it, like a had too much coffee, thought I invented this technique called verifiable delay functions, but haven't heard of them <laughs> before that. There's really smart folks working on, on this stuff. And uh, luckily, I didn't, I didn't know about them because I probably would have stayed at my job thinking like, oh, somebody else already figured this out and they're, they're working on it. 
But without knowing anyone else that's working on this particular idea, I thought, oh shit, this could be it. <laughs> this yeah. is like the thing to actually scale this. I quit my job and uh, started really designing and, and working on this problem. Yeah. Isn't that the funniest feeling sometimes when you feel like you invented something and then you do additional research and you realize there's a whole industry around it. Already. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's happening yeah. before too. Uh, I didn't even want to look because I kind of knew that uh, somebody I'm sure has thought of this. Right. But like once you're sparked and like uh, once you're excited, I just kind of wanted to go for it. Yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit. You know, uh, you went from the cafe, you incepted the idea for Solana, you put together a team, and then now you're tackling, you're tackling a broad landscape of other blockchain scalability solutions and high throughput uh, blockchains, layer one solutions, if you will. Give us a lay of that uh, landscape. And, you know, why are, why are the currently functioning blockchains, if you will, unscalable? Um, you mean like Ethereum, Bitcoin? Yeah. Those why, why are they inherently just just not made um, for commercial use right now? So like the way proof of work is designed and Ethereum has solved a lot of those challenges, but I think it's basically at the limit where it can go is that um, when I like generate a block, I put a lot of economic effort into that thing, right? I spend a lot of electricity and I want this block to be accepted by the network. And that means I need a lot of redundancy and a lot of time to transmit it to everyone and make sure that the whole network sees it and I don't get censored. If you, if you start reducing that time, you know, like just to give a silly example, if the difficulty in Bitcoin wasn't set to about roughly a block is produced every 10 minutes, but let's say every millisecond, right? Then everyone in the network would produce a block at the same time and there'd be a lot of collisions and no one would be able to figure out who is the next what is the longest chain, right? So Ethereum did a lot of really clever work to optimize that. I think their block times are maybe one minute or something like that. I, I don't remember, but but it's significantly smaller than Bitcoin and, and it significantly, I think, better performance-wise. But that's effectively as far as you can go. So based on the kind of those design parameters, I think it's very hard to to make it any faster just from from that point of view. And because of that, they are not really thinking about the next set of problems. Like if you can actually imagine you had an instant network where everyone can transmit instantly, then you could reduce those times to, you know, 100 milliseconds, one millisecond. And what you're then left with is all the computational problems. How do I actually move all this memory around? How do I process all these contracts as fast as I can? How do I compute all the, the final state? then those become interesting. But right now, the systems that are out today are really focused on just the, the basic networking messaging and synchronizing the state. So those systems, I think, are basically at their limit. And the way folks have approached that is uh, this technique called sharding, which is instead of really running one global giant system, you run different shards. And the word shard actually comes from like uh, maybe the first time I saw it was like Ultima Online, which is a massively multiplayer game, right? Yeah. If you ever know anyone ever played that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a geek too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you had like separate worlds and then you lived in different worlds. Just as an engineer, that's just like a little lame. <laughs> so, but it's also like, it's a little bit more, uh, more interesting, like what folks are trying to build with sharding. It's not so much that they're separating everything in different worlds. They're trying to build 
ways for programs running in these separate worlds to communicate between each other and do this quickly and uh, consistently. And those problems are the exact same problems that are distributed systems problems that the underlying consensus layer has to deal with. And they're very hard, right? You're, you're back to like your two generals problem between different shards, not knowing each other's state, not trusting each other's state, the economics behind like potentially one shard being malicious and like withholding data and information. Just those designs um, blow up in complexity really, really quickly. Yeah, the way you laid it out, it definitely sounds over-engineered. What you it, did it's, was... It's just a really hard problem. I yeah. wouldn't say it's over-engineered. It's probably under-engineered because we haven't solved it yet. Yeah. <laughs> but you went back to the drawing board and, and you said by trusting timestamps encoded into messages, you basically replace... Communic- I'm quoting you here. You replace communication with local computation. Yep. Yep. And you came up with this technical solution for it and you called it proof of history, right? Yeah, this was at a time where everything needed to be a proof of. But, Something, yeah. <laughs> but it actually makes sense to be a proof of history because the, the data structure that is generated represents almost like a water clock, right? It's not like an absolute measurement of time where you have like a GPS clock that everyone agrees and it gives you like a timestamp. Uh, it's literally a data structure that grows. So think of a water clock that's dripping water and the level keeps rising. In this particular technique, you can um, make marks in the clock. So you can like mark the water level and say like, you know, when this water level was X, this event happened. When the water level was Y, you know, this other event happened. And that gives you a historical record. You know, another way to think of it is like the rings in a tree, right? A historical record of of weather and events and stuff like that. And... How are you growing this data structure? What sort of cryptographic primitive are you using? So folks like Dan Bonet and other researchers, if you look, if you actually Google VDF research, they're building really sophisticated VDFs and building ASICs specifically to, uh, to make those work. Our implementation is technically not even called a verifiable delay function. It's really um, a delay function you can verify if you want to call it, if you want to call it that. And what it is is a, a SHA-256. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's the same hash function that uh, Bitcoin would use to for puzzle creation, yeah. right? For the proof of work problem. Yeah. So instead of looking for like a golden number with with a bunch of SHA-256 cores, you run it in a loop. So you take the output and use it as the next input. So because it's a, this cryptographic pre-image resistant hash function, this process is single threaded. It means that it doesn't matter how much money you have, how much electricity you have, you can't parallelize it. Well, with enough electricity, you might be able to cool the core that's running and make it run maybe five times faster, but you really can't make it run infinitely faster with more CPU. So it cannot be parallelized. And that's, that's the key part is that when this process is sampled, like basically, let's say every 1 million iterations, we record the current state and the counter. That data structure, those samples can be verified. And we can know with a lot of certainty that somebody took real time to generate it. Okay, so 
let me see if I'm following you correctly. You're using the SHA-256 hash function and you're using it in a recursive uh, sort of manner where you're there's some sort of message and then you hash it and then you take the hash of that and you uh, and you use that to basically like mark the passage of time, right? Yep. And the compute time for SHA-256 is deterministic. Yep. Uh, regardless of what hardware that you're using, to compute a 1 million of those is going to take the same time across any sort of hardware not setup? The, not the same time. It'll take some time. Some time. Okay. It won't, you can't make it zero time. Okay. Or you yes. can't make it like much, much faster than somebody else. You can make it twice as fast, maybe even 10 times faster. But it's not going to be a million times faster, no how, matter what you do. Okay. Uh, how do you keep everything in sync then with all the different nodes with various well, hardware constraints? So this brings perhaps about... Perhaps I'm thinking about it. Uh, no, yeah, no, you're yeah. thinking about it exactly the same way. This brings about the second problem in distributed systems or one of the many ones is this like network synchronicity problem is like everybody in the network has a clock and they look at their clocks and none of their clocks agree. So what we do is we basically say that forget about your clock, the data structure is the clock and real time dilates. So it doesn't matter if somebody is a little faster than you, but because they actually, you, they present you a proof that they spend real time generating this data structure, you just take it for granted that it wasn't a million times faster because they can't lie, right? So we have physical bounds of how much faster it can be with cooling and all this other stuff. And the rest of the system is designed to be tolerant of, you know, of, of some computers going faster than others. Mm -hmm. So trust doesn't need to rely on other nodes? We don't have to synchronize clocks. We don't have to rely on, other, on each other's clocks. Or I don't have to really know what real time it is in the network. Because when I examine this data structure, I really just only objectively look at messages encoded in this data structure as the source of truth. And I look at, you know, how many hashes between each message and that gives me an idea of how much time was spent between them. And then everyone in the network that uses the exact same algorithm to compute the state will objectively come up with the exact same result if they examine the exact same data. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to rely on their source of time, right? So, so they effectively use this data structure as a global water clock. It doesn't matter how you receive it, right? You can be in an island and you get a bottle with a thumb drive in it that floats in, you plug it into your computer and you look at this data structure and objectively from that you see a bunch of messages encoded into it and those messages are from, you know, other islands <laughs> yep. uh, of validators that are verifying, right? And you examine it and you decide, okay, this looks good and you create a message. In that message you encode the, that last state, those 256 bits which cannot be guessed, and the counter, which is the height. And that, that height is effectively the, the global time right now. I, I, I think I follow. Right. Yep. And when, you, when we think about hardware and network constraints, you always think about some sort of bottleneck between storage, computational power, and bandwidth, right? Yep. What's the bottleneck for Solana? Well, um, here's the thing, right? Because this data structure is the only thing that we care about and it's objectively like inferred there's no subjectivity when you when you examine it it can be propagated like BitTorrent like effectively we can now then 
optimize data propagation and use techniques like erasure coding to ensure fault tolerance to propagate this, this source of data as quickly as possible through the network. This allows us to maximize the usage of bandwidth up to whatever the, the backplane is for the rest of the nodes. So let's say you had a bunch of nodes and the slowest node on the network had like 100 megabit, um, the slowest node in the supermajority had a 100 yep. megabit connection. That's the limit that we care about. So the network will process about 100 megabits worth of, of data. Just to give you a rough idea, right? Bitcoin does seven transactions per second, Ethereum, maybe 11. On a one megabit system, you should be able to do 7,000, you know, one gigabit, 700,000. <laughs> one gigabit is basically available everywhere in the world today. Like yeah. every major city. You can go, if not get a home connection, you can find a co-location spot. They'll do this. There's folks, in, there's data centers right now that offer like unmetered one gigabit connections like in Europe and the US. Mm-hmm. That means use as much of this bandwidth as you want. So bandwidth is the limiting factor, but it's only the limiting factor in systems that um, don't have this synchronization problem, right? Where right now when folks talk about bandwidth as a limiting factor in Bitcoin, they're talking about just really synchronizing, getting everyone together and agree on what the, what the source is. We don't have to do that. We're really talking about really a, a second, <laughs> second order problem with bandwidth. How do we stuff as much data in this thing as we can? And therefore, we're really limited by compute and storage speed and latencies from CPUs to GPUs and to SSDs. Mm-hmm. The actual data structure as you're uh, recursively hashing, uh, hashing it, does that, does that grow over time in terms of storage? Are you hitting any sort of storage capacities there? Um, well, if without data, it's, you know, kilobytes. <laughs> uh, so it grows. At full capacity, like processing, you know, full one gigabit worth of transactions, uh, that's about four petabytes of data per year. It's quite a large number. Yeah. So to solve this problem, our network actually splits the storage out from validators. Effectively, there's a contract that runs on chain that allows folks that don't have a lot of bandwidth but can connect, you know, like a few hard drives together um, and provide storage for the ledger. And this entire, you know, four petabytes of storage, right? Imagine it's replicated a hundred times by as many users as we can get. At that particular capacity and rate, it would think cost about 10 to the minus $7 per transaction to pay for the storage aspect of it. The reason for that is because it doesn't matter how many validators we have in the network. The network says that we want 100 replications of the ledger. We don't need any more and that's it. So there's a price cap. To give you like an idea of why that's safe. So most data centers like AWS, Google, they will store like S3, Amazon S3, they will store your your data uh, in three different locations. And using this erasure coding technique, like 1030, which means any of the 10, any 10 chunks can recover the whole set. Any 10 chunks out of 30. You basically split up your your data segment into a bunch of chunks and you pad it with some erasure coding. And then if a bunch of stuff blows up, 
as long as you get 10 of the pieces, you can recover the whole object. The probability of that failing is like one in 10 to the 14 years. And that's only three copies. Like we're, we can set the target to a hundred and it's effectively like uh, infinite. Yep. I follow. So you mentioned that there's various ways for nodes to contribute to the system. It seems like there's opportunities to provide uh, storage, which you mentioned, and uh, perhaps computational power and, and bandwidth. How have you set up like validators onto the system and how can, what are the different ways they can contribute to it? Yeah. So proof of history is just really a proof, like a, a historical record of events in the network. It has nothing, it helps consensus, but it's not itself a, a consensus mechanism. On top of that, we uh, run a fairly vanilla proof-of-stake mechanism, not not very innovative, but one that we think works pretty well. And validators uh, run on the network and have tokens um, staked, delegated to them, and that's their effectively voting power to approve a particular version of history or not. So they get this data structure and they process all the transactions. So... In a very kind of vanilla way, this is like a, a single sharded system where everybody processes everyone else's state uh, and fully replicates it. The challenge is there to scaling is that um, there's a lot of transactions now, right? If we if we actually remove this networking bottleneck, what do we do with all this data? And my myself and like the folks that are on the team were embedded systems people. Um, we, have, we have a lot of experience actually dealing with memory management and squeezing performance out of constrained systems. So immediately, this is a, a fun problem that, that we worked on um, for many years. So how we're solving this is we are using GPUs to do most of the work. So it's kind of like, again, a distributed systems uh, problem in um, CPU design is that um, what you think of a, a computer desktop CPU, it needs a consistent view of memory, unified memory. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you have 64 gigabytes of RAM. Any program running in any of the cores on your CPU needs to be able to talk to any piece of that RAM. Not only that, any changes that any core makes need to be immediately propagated to all the other cores. Same problem as, as, uh, as what we're dealing with in blockchain, right? So how people are dealing with those problems there, the same, same solutions as sharding. They have different layers of caches, uh, L1 caches that are local to the core, L2 caches that are local to a cluster of cores, and L3 caches, which could be the, the point of unification. And all these things are slow. And that's why you don't see, you know, 4,000 CPU core machines, right? You, like, I think right now, typical desktops maybe have eight, Eight cores, but NVIDIA and GPUs uh, don't have this problem. Programs that run on GPUs are designed in such a way that um, they can tell the the hardware that they're executing on exactly what memory they're going to touch ahead of time. So cores no longer need to synchronize between them, and they can operate uh, effectively over non-uniform memory. So NVIDIA ships with uh, 4,000 CUDA cores and a $700 card. Mm-hmm. I take it that you need some sort of advanced hardware to uh, run a node on Solana. There seems to be, there seems to be storage constraints and you know, ba- bandwidth, like you mentioned, is a bottleneck. It does, does that 
lend itself to more, you know, less hobbyists that are running nodes and more nodes that have to run out of data centers and relying on AWS and things like that? Um, you can buy all this hardware at Fry's. Like literally it's just a standard desktop, like maybe something you'd build for like a gamer system. Mm-hmm. Like when we started, when we started, this was a uh, four 1080 TIs in a machine, still under 5,000 bucks. Now it's two 2080s, not even two 2080 TIs. So these GPU cards, NVIDIA keeps doubling cores every two years, basically. These GPU cards get faster and faster and therefore price gets cheaper and these machines get more and more accessible. So for us, it's not really, um, I, don't, I don't really see it as like a bottleneck or, or a constraint on hobbyists because anyone can go and buy hardware to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good to know that you're right that the hardware is basically doubling in speed every yep. every uh, very small limit at a time. Uh, that's really cool. So uh, you mentioned the actual verification process is also by proof of stake, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, where's the development of the project at? Uh, what's live right now and what's on the roadmap for the next next year? So our GitHub has like a effectively, you know, standard software project roadmap. There's a bunch of issues and releases. We have a live testnet up. Uh, we're actually onboarding validators right now. Um, so you can go go download our code, look at the notes uh, and see if it works for you. If not, jump on our Discord and complain. <laughs> There's a validator support channel. Um, it's actually fairly stable now. Um, our first release about a month ago, one of the validators was running like an, an an older Genesis block and was continuously transmitting like an incorrect ledger and the network wouldn't boot up. So those are like the early early uh, fun problems that uh, would cause things to fall over. But a lot of those are kind of kind of fixed and it, it's fairly robust at this point. Mm-hmm. And I take it if you're doing proof of stake and incentivizing validators, there must be a token involved, right? Yeah. You need some Sybil-resistant mechanism, right, to, to run these networks. So the underlying token is really designed just to pay for the hardware execution. So validators, right, they spent compute and storage and bandwidth costs. So the, to- the tokens pay a fee. Mm-hmm. And that fee should reflect the cost to run the network. I see. So the incentives are natively baked into yeah. the token. Yeah. How, how have you designed those incentives to get validators to join the system and and keep uh, doing performance for you? They're not really any different from kind of really what you imagine a standard proof of stake network. The the fees in the transactions, uh, uh, maybe the only interesting thing is that because this is a proof of stake network that every validator replicates and does the exact same work, we felt that market-based fee pricing, especially in this like massively high capacity system is a little weird because we don't really want like validators to spend time sorting transactions to figure out which one they should include based on price. So the network sets a median fee, like stake weighted median fee. So then everybody kind of pays the same. I think it actually makes development a lot easier because you know exactly what it's going to cost to execute something. How did you think about distributing the token to active network participants? You know, it's it's tougher and tougher to do an ICO these days. You, I take it you probably had to go the private route, but how are you trying to get the token in the hands of uh, network operators? We we have been like effectively private so far. We haven't really finalized how we're going to launch yet. This is more 
driven by legal concerns um, yep. than so much based on technology. Like, you know, forget, let's just kind of forget about that for a second. Like what, what would be the most ideal thing we could do is somehow give this token to every human in the world and have them actually know that they have it and value it, right? That would be, I think, the perfect distribution model. Um, how do we do that? I don't know, <laughs> right? We, we have a bunch of ideas and yeah. I think there it's going to be both fun and exciting to innovate uh, because we'll, we can see what happens. But that's the crazy thing about the space and these projects is that you have to effectively IPO to launch a product, right? Like imagine like Uber IPO before they had a first driver cab like <laughs> yeah it's insane right like but we have to do that we have to actually go live and have people start getting these tokens and using them right yeah and when solana does go live does the design of the network lend itself to specific use cases is it going to be a pure play payments network are you um shooting for a smart contracts platform um i mean it's definitely a smart contracts platform so we're our particular choice of building contracts is designed for this massive parallel execution on gpus so contracts executing on gpus is how we're scaling layer one if you want to think of it like computation right how do why are these sharded systems necessary in, in other platforms um, is because ultimately when you're running a bunch of different programs and processes that are doing these modifications, unless you design this from the ground up to use something like a GPU where you don't have uniform memory, things are going to be constrained. We're do taking this approach that, hey, look, NVIDIA is going to double cores every two years. Why don't we just use that? Right. <laughs> um, so two years from now, this thing is going to be twice as fast and again, twice as fast and again, twice as fast, right? For, with the transactions per seconds that you were mentioning earlier, you can effectively run NASDAQ, you know, on chain, right? Not yet. Um, so NASDAQ, as far as I know, um, these numbers are hard to get processes 500,000 messages per second. Um, our theoretical maximum on a one gigabit is 700,000. Um, what we see on a permission network is 200K in like a data center. On a, on a live global one with GPUs, it's somewhere like 50,000 to 80,000. There's a big pile of work for us to go from 80,000 to 700,000. Like a lot of engineering work still left. It's, it's all doable. It's kind of downhill from here because we solved all the computer science problems, but it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah. And whenever I think of such high throughput, you know, I, I have to, I have to think that there's got to be some sort of trade-off that's been made uh, perhaps with security, right? Is there, is there some use case that Solana is best positioned to handle over other blockchains? Um, the stuff that I think is, interesting is maybe like decentralized exchanges if the, if this is running a decentralized exchange and a permissionless network then potentially we could have uh, systems that are totally trustless they wouldn't have the kind of failures that we see today in the in the market awesome um let's talk about your go-to-market strategy so when you think about executing a go-to-market strategy for layer one product is it all about developer mind share is it all about 
is it all about incentivizing validators? Like how do you, there's, there's just gotta be like a multi-fronted battle that you're fighting, right? To launch something like yeah, this. Yeah. Uh, Call, calling I, it a multi-fronted battle, I think is, is, the, is the best analogy. Um, this is like, I think a harder problem than consensus. <laughs> uh, right. My view is we, um, so Brew was like a first, that was the first mobile platform. One that was really hard to use, I would say, like to develop on, but it was fairly successful. There were like 2 billion app downloads. And the reason why is maybe a lot of it was because it was the only game in town, but developers had like some benefit of actually launching there and like getting what they want done. I think for us to be successful, we need to provide value to developers. Where we can do that is performance, speed, and really focus on ease of use, like Usability, I think, is still pretty bad, right, for these chains. I love MetaMask, but it's like a clunky wallet. It doesn't work on browsers that are on your mobile phone, right? Things like that are still like, still not great, right? They haven't been solved yet. And we need, we need those things like effectively to remove speed bumps for users and developers. Like really, I think the focus for our go-to-market strategy is going to be on removing speed bumps as folks get on the get on the network. Mm -hmm. It's quite hard to uh, win developer mindshare these days, especially because there's so many different smart contract platforms that are to yep. launch uh, this year and the next. How do you think about uh, incentivizing existing projects from existing smart contract platforms to port over or incentivizing developers that are thinking about let's say building on EOS or something, oh, I suppose EOS is live, but something that is going to come live to, to focus on Solana. I think like, you know, if the space was mature and people were running on like these networks that had less capacity, they would effectively be paying higher fees. And then it would be really like a business to business conversation. Hey, look, your contract's running here. It costs you like X amount per month. You could just run it here and it'll cost you 10 times less, right? Those conversations would be super easy. We're not there yet. I think in the space, there's just not enough adoption that there's pressure on price, like on Ethereum or on even Bitcoin transaction fees or, or, or EOS for that matter. So we effectively, I think, need to just make it easier, like make it easier to build things. <laughs> There's things that we can do that are fairly obvious, like debuggers, introspection, like better tools, better languages. Our first uh, class language for contracts is Rust. It is a type safe language that is modern. It's been designed like recently that's fast uh, and offers, I think, way better tooling and, and support of writing high quality code versus Solidity or interpreter languages or JavaScript. So things like that, I think, are, are going to be key. If we're not like EOS or Tron, where we have like billions of dollars to throw at people and like, hey, come porter a project, <laughs> that's just not going to happen. So we actually have to provide value. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe ultimately, that's our that's our long game is uh, be the best platform because we are, you know, starting way further back from anyone else. Yeah, you got to be the best organic platform if you're just throwing out money left and right and attracting people, uh, attracting developers that way, then it's just a bidding war, right? If EOS is paying you $2 million to come over and, you know, making shit up, but Tron is uh, paying you $4 million, then you're just having these 
uh, disloyal developers hop over from chain to chain and you know they'll they'll leave Tron when someone else pays them six million dollars. So you don't you don't want those uh well, guys, the, right? the last person wins, right? In that game. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so it'll work for somebody. It's just like we don't we don't even have that option, right? <laughs> yeah, not yet. Do you think about productizing on Solana, maybe just as a demonstration to developers, like what Solana could really accomplish. I think you mentioned earlier that DEXs could be a cool, cool use case, right? Uh, is there is Solana DEX? Is that a is that going to be a thing? So we're we're building basically all the tools for you to launch your own, but we're not. Our goal isn't to to be uh, com- competing with anyone running on our platform. So anything we build, we'll just give it away without like really marketing or sticking our, our, our token, like another token on it. Effectively, I think somebody that is passionate about that use case would need to, to, to run it. We have some partnerships with folks in that, in that space, but that's not our, you know, we're operating systems guys. We're not um, finance, like high frequency traders, but we can build an awesome system for you to, to build that, that product. Another set of applications that I think are really impossible to build in other chains is because of our particular design, we can uh, provide like human instant confirmation times. So right now our block time, if you want to think of it, is about 800 milliseconds. So it's fairly passable for, from a user perspective. Like if you play, a, we have like a silly game of tic-tac-toe as our example. It's written in C right now. But when you play it on chain, you don't actually even realize that it's uh, running in a blockchain. And that's really, I think, the goal of an infrastructure company is to be like, to dissolve, right? <laughs> it's for people when they use, when they use this, when, the, when a, a product ships that uses our, our particular, you know, our network, the users may not even be aware of it, right? They just see an awesome product that works really well. Yeah. Um, I think if you have to explain what blockchain is or uh, then you've already lost the majority of the audience, right? Yep. It's all about obfuscating that and having the benefits of that going behind the scene. Let's talk about the competitive landscape. We we touched on this earlier. You know, you you divulge your thoughts on sharding. I I hope you expand on them as, as well. But there's a lot of scalability solutions floating around, like recursive zk snarks, uh, one for example. And in this world of high throughput blockchains, how are you thinking about yourselves versus those scalability players? Is there a way to partner together to multiply scalability here? How how are you thinking about that? Uh, I mean, I don't want to discount sharding because it's just a really hard engineering problem. It's (laughs) the reason why I didn't even think of it is because dealing with CPU caches, I've kind of pick my battles into something that, that I know. Uh, so our particular optimizations just really avoid that problem altogether. I think um, there's a few folks like near protocol that are, are building some very advanced sharding systems um, that might solve a lot of the problems there. I still think that folks using those systems are going to have a lot of trouble programming them because now you're dealing with a synchronous state between these different shards, right, between these different worlds. So we have a, actually a huge advantage for developers to run code on a system where it's a single state, where you have this atomic property of anything that I read is at that moment synchronized. So I see us really, I think, being quite different from all these other competitors. And because of that, 
uh, will definitely attract certain applications and certain use cases. Um, but I do see some applica- definitely some applications where sharding can be successful. With uh, folks like Coda, like ZK, ZK Snark-based approaches, I'm not a cryptographer, so I can't like... <laughs> My understanding of it is, is really that there's a lot of computational and size trade-offs in the proofs. If you think of our system as a single enormous state machine, right? It's going to keep doubling in size and speed every two years, you know, and if five to 10 years, we might be at one petabyte of state that is replicated worldwide on a 40 gigabit network because they'll be as common as one gigabit is today, 30 million transactions per second. There's just no way you can wrap that in a ZK snark, like the size and the amount of transitions, like state transitions that will occur there will just blow up. (laughs) So like from our perspective, I think, again, those are cool approaches that'll definitely have niche use cases. But what we're building is like, I think uh, like, you know, the biggest multiplayer game in the world. And there's a, I think no one else is going to come close to that. Yeah, I think uh, I think the issue with ZK uh, snarks are, and you alluded to this. It's it well, it takes a lot of time and computation to actually perform the ZK snarks, uh, but to verify them, they're very easy. Yeah. So when you're actually dealing with high throughput blockchains with real life scenarios, I'm not sure you can package that all up uh, in a ZK snark. That makes sense. So the the, the key thing there is that. Um, those things could be packaged up individual, like, you know, payments between you and me, right? That could be packaged up in a ZK snark, but um, that's kind of a single player peer-to-peer game, right? Imagine a single system where all of the world's financial transactions are flowing through a single state that has this atomic property. That is, right, that, that could be the place where price discovery happens for everything in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Just in, in finance terms. It might be cheaper and faster for you to like execute and, and agree in a price on assets that are held in different shards in Ethereum on our network and then do the transfer through their beacon through the beacon chain, right? Mm-hmm. Like execution is like in finance is like the the more interesting use case than settlement. Right? It doesn't matter like nobody cares that E-Trade actually settles two days later. You don't even do you even know that? I do know yeah, that yeah, only because like, I work in the industry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like no, like nobody even knows that, right? That that sell stocks, like their personal stocks on E-Trade, you get a price and a sale immediately. And then sometimes two days later, that stuff happens, right? Yeah. yeah so same right. thing here, right? If it takes, you know, 30 minutes to transfer something from one shirt to another in Ethereum, you're not going to wait that long. You'll execute in a millisecond in Solana and then stuff will settle later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, interoperability is all the hype yeah. right now. People are thinking that different blockchains are have advantages and are good at doing different things. Bitcoin, uh, you can think of it as very good at doing security, right? Um, how do you think about porting over the advantages of different or other blockchains onto Solana and taking advantage of interoperability? Well, like a proof of work, I don't think can be replicated in proof of stake. Maybe this is like my, <laughs> I think proof of work has this like really beautiful property where you have outside input that continuously increases the security of the network. Like the data structure, right, itself that's generated by Bitcoin, you can't go fake it. You have to go spend as much electricity as Bitcoin does, right, to, to get, to build something similar. With proof of stake, 
usage is really the only like defensible thing. And interoperability between proof of stake networks, I think becomes more interesting and easier. With proof of work, what we can do is really um, infer the kind of, the, basically we can, uh, for example, we have enough performance to where you can take the Bitcoin chain, like all the blocks and stream them into Solana. And in a contract on Solana, you can then do pick heaviest chain, right? So you can do proof of work and out like proof of work uh, consensus on data in running inside Solana, right? So now you have like replicated Bitcoin state inside this other blockchain. Things like that become interesting when you have these high performance systems. So those problems, I think, are are not obvious. Like I, I don't know how like Cosmos and Polkadot will play out in, in long term. There's a lot of very complicated like data availability problems where you're trying to fish whether this particular blockchain actually verified or the validator you're talking to is lying or not. I don't know if there's really good solutions there that'll they'll actually be around for five years from now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, we'll have to wait and see. Sort of casual questions here. How, how big is the team now? Uh, any roles that you want to advertise on the podcast uh, to our developer community maybe? Um, so it's 16 people right now, mostly engineers. Um, if you count me, there's uh, like I think 13 folks working on the engineering side and three awesome, uh, very understaffed people doing everything else. <laughs> <laughs> So we're definitely hiring for like really the next stage for this company. Like we built the kernel, solved, I think, all the computer science problems that we needed to. We have tooling, you can virtual machines, like high performance contract language. You can go build stuff and see if you can roll up your sleeves, you can actually build things with Rust. But the goal really for, for us for the next six months is to build everything else like make the the user experience great like make the developer experience great like really remove all the possible ways that human would be turned off right like you know oh like uh these tools are broken or i don't know how to do a particular thing we want tons of examples tons of documentation um, a lot of sample applications that really demonstrate the power of, of the system so if that sounds interesting and fun to you um or just just in general if you love the uh, working on hard problems and trying to squeeze bits and bytes out of out of performance, out of computers, um, just reach out to us. Yeah, awesome. Uh, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Anatoly. Where can people get in touch with you and read about any of the work that Solana is doing? So I'm Anatoly at Solana.com. Fairly easy. <laughs> uh, but if you want to jump on our Discord, that's probably the best way. There's a, a link on our website to Discord. We'll be sure to put in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about Solana, check out the show notes, including your podcast, and remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or the Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.